Hello and welcome to the Young People in the Arts podcast. We're a volunteer-run organisation in London and run a monthly programme of talks, debates and professional development opportunities. This week we've been talking about how the rise of streaming services and podcasts are changing and challenging the cultural sector. Our speakers included Guy Jones, Head of Curation at Prime Phonic, Philip Rappaport, Commissioning Executive at BBC Radio 3, and our host was Kelly Harlock, Classical Editor at Spotify and co-host of That Classical Podcast. Make sure to follow us on social media and check out our website on ypia.co.uk. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi everybody, um, I'm Kelly Harlock, I'll be the chair this evening. Thank you all for coming. Um, so I'm sure you all know this already because you've bought tickets, but just to summarise, we're going to be hashing out how streaming services and podcasts are changing and challenging the culture sector and how different arts organisations are kind of adapting to this new digital age and media creation. So as I said, Kelly. Uh, I am the co-host and creator of that classical podcast, which hopefully a few of you have listened to before. And when I'm not doing that, I work at Spotify as the uh, classical editor. So I'll be sitting in the middle, not literally, uh, of the discussion <laughs> this evening. Um, but why don't I hand over to you guys, and if each of you could kind of give an overview of the role of streaming and podcasts uh, and digital content in your organisation. So big to start with. Um, hi everyone, yeah, I'm Phil, I work at the BBC, I'm a commissioning executive for Radio 3. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically charged with looking at how we can engage younger audiences, and from a BBC perspective that's principally kind of under 35 audiences with classical music, and that's primarily working with Radio 3, but it's also working with BBC Sounds and with our orchestras and choirs on their digital strategies. Um, and yeah, in terms of the role of streaming, I mean I think I mean, obviously our linear channels, our radio stations, our TV channels, you know, have huge reach across the UK and they're still in very good health, but there's, there's no doubt that, you know, when you look at the younger audiences, that there is a decline there, and the first touch point that they have increasingly with organisations like ours is going to be with the on-demand platforms, CRI players, you know, BBC Sounds, and I'm hopeful that most of you have at least heard of BBC Sounds, and hopefully even downloaded it and using it, but um, just to give a quick plug, because I'm sure Carl will do that for fun it. Um, it is, you know, it is the one-stop shop for all the greatest audio from the BBC, um, it is free and it does you know, uniquely combine live radio with podcasts, with music mixes and with on-demand programming. So I think you know, in a kind of increasingly on-demand world, it's, it's just really essential that that we have a really strong slate of and we have possible arts content across all of those media. Cool, uh, yeah, I'm Guy and I, I'm working as the uh, head of curation at Primephonic, which for those of you who don't know, is a streaming service for classical music. So um, the traditional streaming services, Spotify and Apple, although I'm sure they'll be improving them, Kelly is as well, uh, haven't served classical in the way that um, a lot of classical fans would have liked it to. And subsequently, um, classical has really not been uh, a genre that's streamed very often. Classical is apparently 2% of, um, of all music consumed across the world, so radio, live music, streaming, everything. But in streaming, it's 0.2%, and I think the postulation that we have as Primephonic is that the reason that is is because the experience has been so bad so far with the services not necessarily knowing the difference between a composer and a conductor and an orchestra and a choir and a, you know, all the different kind of metadata that you have with classical music. Um, so Primephonic aims to solve that. Um, and in terms of the role that streaming and podcasting have with us, well, we're a streaming service, so it's very important to us. Um, we stream in high resolution um, at 24-bit. Uh, um, and uh, we monitor quite closely what kinds of things people like, so whether it's playlists, whether it's albums, whether it's new releases, catalogue stuff, um, streaming is our business, so it's really important to us. And then for podcasting, it's something we've come to relatively late. I've been in the company now for 18 months-ish, a bit more, um, and we've only really started podcasting in the last couple of months, mainly with artist interviews to start with, but we are now starting some kind of in-house sort of, um, you know, uh, they're basically playlists with some speech in between each track kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that's the state of streaming at Prime Funny. Hand it over. Thank you. Right, should we just dive into the first question then? Uh, so, how has the rise of streaming and podcasts affected the way performing organisations record and distribute their work? That's the first half of the question. Second half, how can organisations further adapt to the changing landscape? So we can go for the first half first if you want. Who wants to kick off? Yeah, sure. How has the rise of streaming and podcasts affected the way performing organisations record and distribute their work? Take it away. Uh, sure. 
Um, I think for, well, for us from a kind of BBC point of view, I think the interesting, most interesting part I think has been the shift in the kind of content ecosystem. So I think where, you know, traditionally we would focus the majority of our production and our marketing efforts on the show or the performance itself, and you know, something like a podcast or a mix might be, you know, essentially sort of bonus material. I think now what we're seeing increasingly is that what we're seeing the value in those elements, those kind of brand extensions in themselves. So you actually realise that you can actually target quite a different audience from perhaps your traditional show or performance with those media, and you can actually talk to them, you know, or also on different platforms, but also at different stages. So it's cropping some, some, something you see with films, and I think increasing with TV, where actually you might have a brand extension like a game that actually you can experience before you even watch a TV show or experience a film, you get a sense of the world, you're going to be immersed in it, that can help build a fan base before you actually engage with the main product itself. So I think that's been, I think that's been quite an interesting, I suppose, shift for us. Um, and it's also meant that we now, you know, we will commission podcasts that have no relationship with a specific, you know, linear program, um, or they might just be created to support a season or a special moment. Um, equally, we will, we've started putting mixes actually into some of our linear programming, so then you'll listen to it, you know, on Radio 3, you might hear a mix, and then that's actually lifted out and put separately into BBC Sound, so we start to join the dots between those two experiences. So I think, well, I suppose what that means, kind of ultimately from a production standpoint, I think is, you have to kind of think from the very outset what is the whole suite of assets that you think you're going to want to create from and all those kind of audience user journeys and touch points from the start through to the finish. Um, and in terms of distribution, I think, again, I think it's a challenging one, but I think there's kind of three things. I'd say, you know, ideally your content needs to be sort of effortless to discover. Um, it needs to really grab attention really, really bloody quickly and then it needs to be super simple to consume. And I think the first of those is really tough if you don't own the platform that you're working with, obviously we have the, the use of, obviously we own BBC Sounds, so that gives us a degree of control. I think what that means is for, it's still for any of our brands, because we're all fighting for, for kind of eyeballs and eardrums, it's just how can you, you know, I think I always try and like tease the best content that you have at the very start, um, and we're seeing that actually, I think, in the way even pop tracks are written, I think now, and I've surfaced on the streaming platforms that you get a little prelude or like a little overture almost at the start gives you a hint of the great stuff that's to come. So I think that's been an interesting model that we're trying to emulate. Um, and yeah, I think there's just, there's just been a lot of different, different approaches to the imagery you use, the visuals you use. You know, if you've got a limited number of characters that's next to your thumbnail, how can you use those in the most compelling way to communicate the language and the tone and, and how you can hang on to grab people. So yeah, it's, it's quite a lot to consider and it's definitely, I think it puts strains on your budgets, but I think it's just about prioritizing those. Yeah, it's interesting you mention um, albums now being being written to have sort of an opening track that kind of serves like an overture or something like that. There's a there's a book by David Byrne called How Music Works, where he talks about how the medium of music has changed the way that it's written over the years, and he goes right back to you know writing in the church and then writing for you know non sacred music and then through live and then CDs and so on, and how each of these kind of things has actually affected the way the music works. And what we see a lot of the time now in Chromophonic is that sometimes people will split a symphony, say, instead of into four movements, they'll split it into more tracks so that it's easier to play this. Uh, so, it's, so they might use tempo markings or wherever they can. Um, and you say that, especially with operas, you get the same thing as well, kind of, so that you get lots and lots of two-minute tracks instead of kind of these big beefy ones. Um, and I guess the, the risk with that is that you might find that composers write, change what they write, right, to, to, to fit the streaming service, which on one hand is really interesting. That's a really interesting thing to think about. And for a composer, I imagine, it's a really nice uh, challenge. But also the worry is that then people aren't writing what they want to write because they feel like they have to make it kind of fit a certain package. So I think it's interesting. I think people aren't going to stop writing the music they want to write. I don't think uh, that will happen. But it's interesting to think about. And then in terms of um, uh, distribution and, and how servers are, uh, rather organizations are changing to match streaming, we see, um, I, I think the biggest thing is that the cost of entry is now so low. So you can, through through distribution services like CD Baby and TuneCore, we were talking about earlier, those, um, you can release an album digitally very, very cheaply. Um, and there's no real, you know, there's no real sort of um, quality assurance that takes place or anything, which is both a good and a bad thing, I guess. Um, so I think that's one thing. And also the other thing is um, it, it means it kind of, this shift towards playlisting culture a little bit as well. So when we talk to labels at Primefinic a lot of the time, we're really interested in album stuff because we find that our listeners, as core classical listeners, tend to like the album as a package. They like, um, they like thinking it's an artist's kind of endeavor that they pick these pieces together and they put them together and, and, and whatever. Um, 
And, but a lot of the time the labels will pitch tracks of those things instead to us for playlists. And our playlists do okay, but albums do beat them slightly in terms of the numbers of people that stream them. So I think in classical anyway, there is a bit of an interesting trade-off, especially when you think like, one thing that we do in Chronic, for instance, is we have like a work page, so you can go to whatever, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and then see every, every recording that we have of that piece, right? You can pick your recording and say, okay, well, I, I know I don't want Carrie-Anne for whatever reason, I don't like him, oh, Baron Boyne makes a better pianist, oh, let's go for a Bardo, fine. Or you can discover new stuff, or, or whatever you want to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, I think there's a, there's a sort of a shift in the, in the mind of the listener that needs to happen, really, between, like, albums versus, like, recordings of a piece. So an album that might have multiple pieces on it, those are recordings, if you see what I mean. So I think it's a really interesting time for, uh, and, and very challenging for organizations to get, uh, get their heads around that. And I think the answer isn't quite clear yet. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I would also add that in a time when kind of anyone can distribute and record their own work through YouTube, TikTok, and, and put it up on Spotify for free, sometimes, you know, it's not always the big arts organizations that get the attention. It's the kind of, it's the little guy. You know, people don't always want that kind of big authority telling them about a certain topic. And I don't know, maybe it's just an interesting time that we live in. That's what I'm gonna say. Um, next, uh, let's see. Okay, this is a good one. What content has generated the most interest in the past year? And how do you measure success? Have you seen evidence that this sort of content has actively contributed to audience development and increased revenue? So I guess we're talking about trends. What kind of trends have you seen over the past year? Who wants to start? Shall I take one? Yeah, I feel like the sudden start. Yeah, it's fine. I'll start this one. Um, so, well, the, the, the most streamed item of content on Prime Phonic, drumroll please, in the last year is Vikinger Olufsen's Johann Sebastian Bach album, which has won all the awards going and uh, is, is, is brilliant, right? Like, uh, it won all the awards for a reason, I think. Um, and I think that's a really interesting uh, sort of use case to think about because it's an album, fine, but it's also 35 tracks of quite short, I think the longest track on it is around eight or nine minutes. And it's not all piano music, it's some stuff that he's arranged for, for, for piano or whatever, but it's, um, it is almost like a playlisty kind of album. I think it really walks that line quite nicely. Um, and I think there was a lot of skepticism when he first released it as well, that, because the album he did before that was a Philip Glass album, so I think people saw him a bit in that kind of vein as a sort of neoclassical, um, you know, a lot of this kind of new minimalist music that's very popular and does very well in playlists and things like that. And when he, when he apparently said to DG, I want to record Bach next, they were like, no, no, you have to do like Steve Reich next, or you have to do you know, something, something in American minimalism again. And now at the Bach Song Awards, they wanted to do more Bach, but he's like, well, no, I want to do the next thing. So um, I think it should really be driven by artists a lot of the time. I think those, are often a few, those people are often a few steps ahead of the organizations, creatively speaking. And I think when they can be convincing and when they can be compelling in their arguments for why they should do things, I think they have a real responsibility to, to take the reins and do that. Um, what was the other part of the question? I get, um, so how do you measure success? Is it Right, yeah, so we uh, have an analytics backend that we can see what people stream and where they are. It's quite detailed, like what platform they're using, iOS, Android, uh, desktop, all of that stuff, um, which we do use, but we also try, like my job, I think, is partly to half be blind to that, because if we only look at that, then we'll only just have a feedback loop of stuff that people already know and already like. So I see it as really important to like keep, keep digging through the crates, to use a final term, and find the weird, interesting, random stuff that maybe people haven't heard so much, especially as our users tend to be core classical users again, so like they probably think they know everything already. So it's actually one of the really fun parts of the job is trying to surprise them. Um, but of course, yeah, we also measure our sort of success in terms of like users that we have and downloads that we have um, of the app itself. Um, of which I can't really give too much information, I'm afraid. <laughs> so do you think it's people, it's artists like Wicked Olsen who are bringing new people to the platform, or are they, does, do you recall classical fans also enjoy this music? I think, I think yeah, but, but you just inferred your England here, Kai was saying, is, is it that he uh, is bringing new audiences, or is it just kind of that he's called classical? I think the answer is that he's both, right? He's like. He, he won all these awards, he's won Gramophone Artist of the Year, he won like Album of the Year at BBC Music Magazine, he's, he's won like all the awards, literally. And like, people say it's moving the Bach tradition forward and, and that he's doing all these amazing things. And I think that's because he is, he's a serious musician who approaches this music very, very seriously. Um, but he's, I guess, smart enough to know that he maybe needs the package is slightly different in, in, in 2019. 
Um, I think, yeah, I think it's both. He walks that line really, really well, and that's not easy. The other example I think of that does that really well is that book by Alex Ross, uh, The Restless Noise, which is like amazingly popular with people who know nothing about classical music, and then also was just adored by the core classical market as well, because he knew his stuff, but he, he writes in such a good way. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, from our point of view, I suppose, across BBC Sounds in particular, I mean, and our radio stations, obviously, we look at reach, we look at time spent, um, we'll look at, obviously, the sounds, kind of weekly, weekly active users, and actually numbers of downloads as well, but obviously, almost a social media for social sentiment, obviously, we'll look at kind of press reaction as well. I mean, in, in terms of, I suppose, the most successful stuff for us, what, I mean, what's recent for me is, obviously, working in an organisation like the BBC is that actually, obviously, we don't just look at classical and advanced work, actually, you get to step back and look at what performs well across the piece, and, and it's very interesting because there's certain things you don't necessarily think will be huge hits are. Peter Crouch's podcast is massive, and it's massive with young, loads of young people, and not just sports-interested people, but more broadly, um, but then equally, you know, elements you might think wouldn't resonate potentially so much like Brexit cast, massive, also with younger audiences. As is something like you know Beyond Today, where they take one story from Radio Four's Today program and they go into it in real depth. And I think what the kind of trends that we kind of see coming out of that for me of an issue, first of all, just entertainment. And I think you know we shouldn't forget that that actually that is still the primary reason why you know most audiences of all ages just even choose to engage with a lot of this content. I think talent is key, and I think I think we I think there's got a real responsibility in the arts to kind of make sure that you know we are representing the audiences we want to attract more effectively. Um, and and I think the, yeah, there was one more that I was going to say, but oh yeah, relevance. And I think that's why Brexit cast and, and things like that really hit home is because the young audiences who are listening to that, they, they kind of feel like they're, they are actively affected or like has a real relevance and immediacy for them. I think it's really important. And I think when we then spill that over into the kind of classical music realm for us, what's been really interesting and I think exciting for us has been, I'm sure you have this on Spotify, Kelly, as well, is that in our music mix kind of, you know, we've got huge mixes from like Radio 1 DJs and big talent, which obviously do really well with young people. But our mindfulness mix, which is classical music, is the fourth most popular on sounds. And that's a massive deal, and it's also with young voices as well. And I think when we're looking at entry points to the arts and classical, which obviously you know, there are some stereotypes around that that make it a challenge, I think remembering that, you know, again, from 16 years upwards, pretty much mood management is pretty much the number one reason why people choose to consume the content they consume. And so I think if we can bring the active benefit of our arts content and really just plaster it in front of people like that, then I think it removes a lot of the barriers to entry. So our mindfulness has been really successful. Similarly, some of our kind of podcasts like Classical Fix with Candy Button Hill, where again, she'll just take Radio 1 DJs or just celebs from you know outside the classical world who don't really know anything about classical, she'll mix them a playlist of classical music and they'll chat about stuff they loved, stuff they thought was you know absolutely awful. And 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 you know there's always gonna be one chat that just resonates with them for one reason or another. So I think that again has worked well. And, and the other thing I've noticed is like is Jess Gillen and her this classical life, which I think for those who haven't listened to it, is basically her chat to other musician mates about, you know, really actually about the broad spectrum of interest they have as musicians, you know, they don't just listen to classical, they, you know, it might be dubstep or, or house or Beyonce or whatever it might be. And again, I think there, the, the reason that resonates is because she is a young person, and I don't think we necessarily have showcased enough young people, you know, who are kind of pioneering the way that she is. So I think she's a really you know, great role model for people as well. Lovely. I also noticed that um, Radio 3 are launching that Jessica Curry series with video game music. Yeah think like acknowledging that classical music is kind of changing is a really important sort of way to get rid of those barriers as well. Lovely stuff. So this is what I'm really interested in hearing as well. How would you recommend that arts organisations approach this sort of digital content for the first time, particularly when many of them are limited in terms of financial and human resources? Great question. Who wants to start? <laughs> That's a point. <laughs> no, I, I don't mind. I'm go. go for it, yeah. Um, it is it is a tough one. I think the first thing I'd say is it's just being really brutally single-minded about the target audience that you're going for, and I think trying to understand you know which platforms they're on, what their behaviours are, the kind of content that they're engaging with. I think as arts institutions, huge generalisation about to come out, um, but certainly from I think I think from a radio three and from a BBC point of view, sometimes we're too worried about alienating our core and are really loyal call, and I think actually, especially when we're talking about streaming and podcasts, you know, 
you know, more of those audiences are the younger, are the younger end of it. I think we are seeing more older audiences realize the benefits of being able to access, you know, like we're saying, multiple recordings in one place before maybe they then make a decision to buy a CD. Um, so I think just really understanding, yeah, where your top audiences are, how the platforms work, so trying to get a sense of how the algorithms, if you can, I'm sure Kelly can tell us how those work, um, how they help, you know, bring, you know, bring your, your content to the service is important. I think experimentation, I mean, you were saying like the barrier to entry, you know, in terms of recording distribution is low. I think the barrier to entry to experimentation in that sphere is pretty low as well. Um, and I think actually I was listening to your Vicky Burles and, you know, combination of kind of podcasts with playlists. And I think what, what's super exciting about that, and, and I think, you know, Apple Music actually did this really well with that up next, um, where they, when they launch brand new artists as well, that notion of the multimedia mix, you know, in half an hour I knew more about Vicky Burles and because I'd heard not only what he said about himself, but the pieces he played, plus the pieces that influenced him. And with half an hour, I knew more about him as an artist than I could have if I just listened to a mix of his music, or even maybe just one podcast that was purely just him describing his life. So I think that's a really, that's a really exciting opportunity, I think, for people to think about. I think the third thing is, and this is a tough one, but I think it's having a, a strong, consistent brand identity across, the, across all your digital touch points. So I think especially for us on Radio 3 and some of our shows, it's quite hard to think right as a linear radio station, how do we manifest, you know, our, that same show or a playlist representing that show or a podcast representing that show in the digital space in sounds to an audience who may not even ever listen to that linear, that linear radio program. So I think trying to make sure that, again, the language you use, the tone, the talent, the imagery and the visuals and everything else like that, I think that are consistent, I think is, is important. And I think probably the final thing I'd say is, is kind of be realistic. I think we, we sort of live in a world where you know, audiences are so hungry and we're kind of always on engagement. And I think it's very easy to just kind of pander to that and just think flooding them with, with kind of short form visual content all day, every day across your Twitter and your Instagram, whatever else is gonna, is gonna solve that problem. But I think actually, you know, especially with limited budgets, just thinking and kind of fewer, bigger, better, taking the time to craft that, that content and maybe not so regularly that putting it out, I think people will respect that and kind of value the content a bit more. Yeah, I, I totally agree that experimentation is really important. Like finding um, finding the right thing isn't necessarily going to be like a straightforward thing. Like finding what works isn't straightforward. Um, and if I've learned one thing from uh, marketers that I work with, um, it's that testing is like the most important thing you can do. Just like try something and see how it works. And I think especially with more creative things like like, like podcasting, for instance, like you sometimes the idea in your head is very different once you actually do it and you realize what the challenges are actually what makes this way easier than you thought it was going to be um so i think it, and yeah with, with the cost of entry being so low in terms of equipment you can get like you know it, it, it's you basically mics on these phones are so good now that you can essentially record uh, with anchor the app right you can record podcasts on your phone i mean it's uh, the content outweighs the quality i think uh, if your content is good enough and compelling it doesn't no one's going to care that much if you can hear some background noise or if, or if the audio isn't amazing so i would say yeah completely experiment and just see what works um, and the other thing I think is to try to tailor, tailor the content to the platform. So um, the great thing about podcasts and what's so amazing I think about the fact that it's, it's, it's I mean, the last year or two or more probably I guess um, having this huge uh, sort of popularity is that it's, it's long form content, it's back, right? Like in a world where everything's all about like short little things in your feed or whatever like it seems really nice to me that you can have like an hour long episode or something that people just listen to and like I don't think people I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't get the impression that people are like reading really long like articles online very much. They maybe get like I know for myself, like I'll start with like, yeah, I'm gonna read this and I'll get like, you know, halfway through or three quarters through and then it's just like something else comes up or whatever. But with a podcast you can have it on, yeah, you're doing washing up while you're like, you know, on the commute or whatever. And I think it's really brought long for content back. Um, so tailor your content to the right place and yeah, you can have an in-depth interview with somebody, you can um, do something a bit weirder and, and a bit more interesting and then, and then keep the kind of the catchier stuff, uh, the stuff that needs to be a bit shorter and snappy, keep that for your YouTube and your other, your other stuff. Um, but yeah, those, those are the main things I think for me. Great. My advice as a podcaster is don't overthink it and just give it a go and like I was saying, it's you can get such cheap equipment, you can get free editing software. You know, when Chris and I started the podcast, we used a pair of pants as a pop shield. So, you know, it doesn't always matter. And as you say, it's, it's content over quality. If you're saying something worth hearing, people will, will want to hear more. Um, so I say just go for it. It only takes a couple of people. Don't have tons of meetings. Just, just do it. Right. Okay. Do you feel 
that the future success of arts organisations depends on the intelligent use of streaming and podcasting? That's a big question. <laughs> Guy, take it away. Um, it is a big question. I, I don't think that it, I would say it depends on things like this, but I think um, it probably remains to be seen a little bit. I think what's quite good to see is that um, it's being adopted quite early by seemingly lots of arts organisations, kind of like dipping their toes into podcasts and, and kind of content production. One thing that used to wind me up so much was people saying like, oh, well, of course, digital, digital's the future. It's like, it's not the, well, yes, it is the future, but it's also now, like, you can't, you know, it, it, you, you, I feel like so much of the arts is always, is always like a step behind. It's like, okay, cool, we're gonna start doing, we're gonna have a YouTube channel. It's like, okay, cool, like five years ago, it was when everyone else was doing it. It's always a bit like a playing catch up. Um, and I think with streaming and with, with podcasting, I feel like that's been a bit less of an issue. It feels like people have kind of hit the ground running a bit more, which is really good. Um, but yeah, I don't like, we'll see, right? Whether streaming is like the final kind of form of, of or like how people consume their audio, who knows? Um, maybe, I mean, I can't imagine what the next thing would be. Maybe it is here to stay, apart from like chips in your brain or whatever, but like, yeah, I, I would say it's going to be very important. But uh, again, it's not without its problems. Like, it works on a basis where it pays out artists the same way that artists were paid when there was a physical CD, when there were costs like transportation and like a bottle staff and manufacture and breakages and things like that to factor in. All those things, are, the labels still take that off the top of the artist's cut. So I, I would like to see artists being better um, uh, compensated for their, for, for their music, for their work via streaming. I think that's something we need to fix. Again, they're not going to stop making music. There's no, there's never going to be a shortage of amazing music out there. But uh, I think we will risk how much of it there is if we don't really help people make a living from it. Um, but yeah, it, it, we just have to wait and see and try and be reactive. I guess it's not a very satisfying answer, but I think uh, who knows. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, and also it depends on you know who your who your audience is, who you're trying to speak to, what the platforms that they are. I mean, they're not all going to be streaming. I think a lot of as I'm sure a lot of our arts organisations have quite traditional audiences as well who are absolutely vital to the revenues that are coming into our businesses and they are probably late adopters of streaming in a lot of ways so therefore pumping all of your marketing and all of your you know, production budgets into the streaming sites is probably not, not going to be the best kind of solution for that. Um, but yeah, as we said, I mean, obviously for those younger audiences that is often going to be their first, their first port of call. I think the other, the other thing that interests me, which I'd like another guy and Kelly's kind of opinion on this is I mean, you look at the, the TV streaming market right now, it is just suddenly fragmenting kind of out of nowhere and suddenly you've got Netflix having all the Disney stuff taken off and Disney bringing their own platform forward, Apple's bringing theirs, you know, we're starting to get to this crazy fragmented world and, you know, people are not going to pay subscription fees for all of these different services, they're just not. And when you look at younger audiences, they don't have the disposable income to be able to even do that in the first place. So I guess the question is, you know, what, you know, is that going to happen in the, in the music streaming space? Don't know. I mean, it's already, you know, quite hard for music streaming sites to really, I think, distinguish themselves really compellingly. Um, and so I think that's going to be, that's the interesting kind of existential question for me is what, what might the future hold and what might we learn from how TV is kind of streaming right now? I think, yeah, I, I think a lot about this and what TV is doing, right? And like Netflix kind of changed the game or whatever and then, and then it slowly, piece by piece, the content owners have taken their content back and now like, and that's why Netflix invested so much in original content, of course. I don't think that will happen in music, or I hope it doesn't. The, the stuff that Tidal did with like exclusive albums didn't really seem to move the needle very much. Um, and I think maybe what we see a lot in the industry is like things will have a window, so maybe, yeah, maybe Spotify gets an album for two weeks exclusively before everyone else gets it, that kind of thing. I think fine, but we'll probably keep seeing. But I think in terms of like only being able to get an album on one service and that's the only place, I think kind of in no one's interest. You, you see it like there's an amazing classical label called Alpha, uh, Alpha Classics, and they didn't want to be on Primephonic for a while because they wanted to be their own, they wanted their own streaming service called Alpha Classics. And uh, it's like, okay, that's kind of admirable, but just like, but don't, like, <laughs> don't do that. Like, it's so much work to build a streaming service, like, trust me. <laughs> and like, you're, you're, you know, you're offering one thing, how many people are gonna pay, what, 10 pounds a month, like, to access all your stuff? Um, so I, I, I hope that doesn't happen because I certainly, yeah, like you say, I'm not going to pay for Amazon and Netflix and whatever I do play for both of those actually. But <laughs> choose the limit. Um, but I'm not going to, yeah, I don't want to keep 
paying for all these different things piecemeal. And like um, the other thing with original content, which is what Netflix has really made its thing now, again, like I don't think if there's a new recording of whatever, um, Brahms cycle or something that's exclusive to Primephonic or Idagio or Spotify or whatever, it's like, well, yeah, there's like 9,000 other Brahms cycles you can kind of listen to. It's not like that's the only one. It's not like with the new Beyonce album where like, Beyonce album. So I, I think, I really hope it doesn't happen, and I think there's good evidence to show that it won't, but I guess we'll see. Great stuff. Um, let's, how much time have we got left? We've got about 15 more minutes, and then we'll probably go to the audience. 15 more minutes, okay, brilliant. Um, guys, what do you look for most when hiring young professionals and graduates seeking jobs in this area? <laughs> It's what everyone wants to know in the room. Well, I, God, I think um, for me, I think I think sometimes, yeah, I think the kind of the classical side of girls can feel quite necessary in their respective. So I think I, I always like to meet people who've got like a really broad range of interests and kind of bring that to the table. Whether it's in, like an interview process or just you know the kind of over a coffee or anything like that. So I think. Having, yeah, bringing those full range of interests, like I say, that's one of the huge benefits of the BBC, of being able to work actually very closely with all the different genres of music we work with across, also obviously audio and video, all in one place, is that you just get that, that breadth of experience and you can start to bring the learnings. And like you said, you know, it does feel like we are often a step behind, you know what, like the pop and the rap and the, and the hip hop, it's all they're doing. So I think it's, that's always, that's been really useful to kind of cross-generate those ideas. So I think if you can demonstrate that, that interest and that experience, I think that's really useful. I think, We've kind of talked a lot about audience segmentation, you know, what kind of content works on what different platforms, where your audiences are, you want to connect with. I think demonstrating a, a good kind of understanding and comprehension of, of the platforms that are going to, going to deliver and the balance between kind of marketing and, and kind of content development, I think, is always, is always really impressive. And yeah, I think just also just like a passion, a passion idea for the business or the brand, or you know, that you've done, you've done your research and, um, and that you have. I don't know, willingness to kind of challenge the status quo and, and think creatively and, and yeah, and not just kind of get in line, but yeah, kind of challenge with. What, what would differentiate one graduate from another? What have you, like, what would you really. What would differentiate? Well, okay, so I'll give you a scenario. I was interviewing probably about two months ago, can't say for what role, obviously, but, um, and we. And uh, I think, you know, often, you know, it's kind of the post-lunch lull and you're, you know, you've eaten a bit too much, you're feeling super sleepy and then, and this girl came in and, you know, her, her experience from the CV, you know, CVs only ever tell you so much, you know, we, so we had no real expectations as to what it was going to be like and she suddenly just brought out, you know, this, and it was, it was ultimately, I suppose, a PowerPoint, but it was just this incredibly dynamic PowerPoint that demonstrated that she had done so much research into exactly the Sephora orchestras, um, all the different sorts of audiences that they spoke to, all the different media through which they, you know, traditionally had communicated, um, you know, how they were represented absolutely in streaming services and through kind of podcasts and mixes, um, and just, and then just, you know, basically sort of got through a campaign in the room which said, you know what, actually, I think if you know your ambitions are to connect more effectively with these kind of young audiences, this is how I do it. And she, you know, she brought her own kind of production skills into play that she needed. She obviously could operate cameras and record audio herself as well. And so just in the space of about 15 minutes demonstrated what kind of multifaceted, I suppose, marketer and content developer in a way that she was. But um, it was so organic and it was all, you know, she'd done all of her own, she ran her own YouTube channel and she DJed on the weekends and all these kind of things. And it was just, it just blew us away, actually. And I don't think it necessarily took that much, but it was just that, that tiny extra bit, I think, of preparation, of understanding, you know, the kind of the real business challenges that we faced as this kind of, you know, as an, as an orchestra working in the, in the industry today. And that, yeah, I mean, that was, I was just so impressed with that. Yeah, sounds impressive. It was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't think I ever prepared that much for any of my teams. Yeah, like, uh, Definitely preparation is really important. I think also um, the main thing I think for like well, it's funnily enough true of arts organisations that I worked in, and also now like in the startup world, um, being able to be adaptable and to be able to like um, to do lots of different things, right? Like your job title might say one thing, and I'm not talking about you know having to you know do things that like you shouldn't have to do as part of your job. Like you should also <laughs> say no to things like hang on, no, I'm not doing, not getting your coffee or whatever. But like. I mean, in terms of like, often it's small teams, and often 
you have to be a bit of a multitasker. So like maybe you're in a digital content team and you've never cut video before, but like you need like being able to say, oh yeah, cool, well, I'll do a I'll do a course on YouTube and I'll figure out how to cut video, like stuff like that, being adaptable, being prepared to like say, yeah, I've never done it before and I'll, but I'll give it a go. I think that really, really helps. Um, being honest about what you can't do as well. I would much, much rather people say, oh no, I've never done that, than say that they have and then be in a situation where it's like, you said that you, you knew how to do this. And um, being honest is always great. We had uh, one employer who once, who was brilliant at that, he just said, I'm gonna be honest, I've got no idea what you're talking about right now. And it was great because you could be like, oh, amazing. That's such a relief to hear because now I can explain it to you and it's fine. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and on, on that line as well, you, you can teach a lot of stuff on the job. So um, I think a big thing is just being like, you know, uh, nice and like friendly and like easy to work with. I think no one wants to hire someone they feel like it's going to be difficult to work with, even if they are amazingly talented and qualified. So um, yeah, that's always, that's always a, a bonus, of course. Perfect. Um, time for one more? Brilliant. This is another good one. What would you like to see more of from arts organisations with regards to streaming and podcasts? What do you want to see done differently? Do you want to shake things up? Am I going? I feel like sorry, the closest person. Um, what would I like to see them do more of? Um, I mean, I think, you know, we talked a lot about experimentation and innovation, and I think there's a reason kind of buzzwords to throw around, but I think, I just think, it always thinks back to like when you go to Google Images and you type in classical music and all the stuff that comes up and it's just old white men and just normal shots of instruments, and I'm just like, at some point there's got to be a critical mass of like more dynamic, interesting ways of representing that genre that are going to start taking over because it just does my head in, but yeah, and uh, you know, and I think we're guilty of it. I think sometimes with our orchestras and choirs, you know, that when we launch a season, we get our old white male conductor to sit in front of the camera and tell you why he's excited about the season. Oh my God, I'm like, it just makes me want to slit my wrist sometimes. But I think the the reality is that you know, again, going back to the point of like, if you want to attract people, the audience, you need to play back to them the kind of people that they can identify with and the kind of themes that they can they can that resonate with them. So I think just. Yeah, just that, that notion of like, yeah, trying to change things up, trying to, just in the way that you talk. And I think language is a really tricky thing, I found. So for Radio 3, right, you know, it's a very, you know, in, in certain ways, it's a very traditional radio station, although we're doing a lot of really exciting new programming. I'm just going to do a quick plug here for Night Tracks, which is um, <laughs> kind of four nights a week at 11 p.m. But it's a really exciting experimental, new immersive experience with classical music um, with Sarah Morpeach and Hannah Peel, who does a lot of, kind of electronic music as well. Really recommend you kind of check that out. Um, but that is, you know, we are trying something very different now, which is essentially an immersive classical soundscape. So there is continuous sound throughout the kind of hour and a half of the program. Um, the genres are totally bent, so there's no, you know, and I think on streaming services we're absolutely seeing that those genre fluid listeners are absolutely there to be taken and, you know, there to be captured when it comes to arts content as well. So that's, that's been really interesting, but one of the toughest parts has been how do you talk about in this case, classical music in a way that isn't alienating to people who don't know lots about classical music. I don't have the answer to that, but I think that's something I really would love to see. I think all of us is just trying to trying to tackle in a in a kind of a more proactive way. And I think a lot of that comes down to the talent. And I think talent and the diversity of those people that we are putting on screen or that we are, you know, how we represent them, the content that we're creating, I think is is really important. So I think that's that's kind of a big crusade that I think we need to carry on doing. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I would add is, um, I think what uh, arts organisations can do a really, can probably do a better job of, and, and, and in terms of like improving how they utilise streaming and things, is like valuing the content that they have for, for the amazing content that it is. Right? Like take take the LSO, right? Or the, the, the as I there, right? It's easy for me to, to call that, but they have like the best musicians in the country, if not the world. And it's like, why aren't you, this is your strength, right? Play to your strengths. Don't try to imitate what, you know, someone else is doing. Or like, you, you have amazing players, use amazing players, right? That's your strength. And the same with if it was a gallery, it's like, you've got this amazing, it's amazing, this amazing art. Like, I think it, it is world class, the content these organizations produce. And I think maybe sometimes people are a bit afraid to acknowledge that and to, and to go out and say, no, this is like the, literally the best stuff that you can get. Um, and I think, especially when it comes to like partnering with bigger organizations or pitching for like bigger platforms on which to like to promote that content, I think like for instance like partnerships, I think you know 
so many people would be interested in. When, when I was at the ASO, there was like a the marketing team did this um, collaboration with Google, like about a, on a recording at Abbey Road, and like we were really excited to work with Google, but then Google were really excited to work with the ASO. So it's like it's the ASO. They recorded Star Wars. Like everyone is excited about like what world class quality arts, and I think um, people should remember that in our organisations. Like we have an ASO our sleeve. Like it is like it's really good. <laughs> um, like don't forget that it, it belongs belongs at the top. And I will also just quickly add that um, podcast listeners, as a kind of, um, as a group of people, they love to hear all the kind of secret details. They want to know something that other people don't. Um, and I was talking to the Royal Opera the other day about maybe making a podcast about something. And like you're saying, like don't overthink it. You've got all the stuff there already. You know, talk to the armourers, talk to the people who make the shoes, the costume designers, and everything. That stuff. You know, not the stuff that you see performing on stage. You know, it's all that kind of backdoor stuff. Um, so that's what I like to see. And not always an expert talking to another expert. You know, I would love to see more young people talking to young people in a really kind of informal way about things. Um, I think arts, the arts generally could benefit from that, um, for sure. Um, great. Anyone want to add anything? which I think is kind of to your point around finding any content you have, I think we're doing a lot of work on the kind of looking at our archive at the moment. And I think there's also, I think there's a huge push for like, like original content, brand new content that you know kind of is created from scratch. But I think equally a lot of our organisations here probably have an amazing wealth of, a, of material that's been amassed over the years where actually also likely the rights situation is probably much better as well. And I'd just say also, yeah, just consider how you can do what I'm looking at kick down here because we worked on the archive together and it's it's a, it's a banger. But um, I think yeah, just also looking at kind of the wealth of reserves and content that you probably already have, um, and kind of using that to leverage your your brand, I think is also really useful. Cool. Brand. Who has a question? This young man. Hi, um, so I noticed you, you chatted a bit about, um, in terms of when you get various algorithms, calculations, where you can talk remote. You didn't mention so much about what revenue goes back to artists from this streaming and podcast stuff. I work as a singer, and sometimes we have bits of other session work. And you're generally either offered a buyout, where you often get more money straight away, or you can get royalties from that, but you get less at the start. Is there some sneaky way of working out what's more valuable to pick in terms of what you can expect from whatever you're working on from a financial project. Does that make any sense? If you see what I mean. Um, if there was, I think, uh, it would be it would be a no one. If you knew the answer to that question, or if any of us did, we'd be very popular people. <laughs> and, and like, that you hear these famous stories about, like I mentioned Star Wars, like um, musicians who played on the original Star Wars soundtrack who took the buyout and not the royalty. And like, and the ones who took the royalty all now live in nice houses in nice parts of London. And the ones who took the buyout, maybe not so much. Uh, so much of it is is that's that's just the that's just the way it goes. Like you just kind of have to make a call. I'm interested that you mentioned it though, because in my experience, a lot of the time it is just a buyout that's offered and not a royalty. Um, I mean, if you believe in it and think it's something great, then why not take the risk if you can afford to on on the royalty? But I mean, yeah, it's it's an eternal problem until we come up with some middle ground. Any other questions? Hi, um, I was just wondering if you had a magic wand and you could change the perception of your respective, in like the companies that you work for instantly overnight in the general public, what would that be? Is there a particular thing you think is consistently misunderstood? Lights in my head. <laughs> I do. Uh, God, I mean, that's a huge question when you talk about the BBC. Um, I, oh God, where to start? It's this guy when you, or kill him when you guys lean in and grab the mic for me because I need like 20 minutes to think about this first. Um, I guess for us, I mean, it's, I think we know we have a very difficult challenge in that we essentially offer everybody. And that is, you know, it's fantastic in many ways, but it's also very challenging in others. And that's, you know, you literally, however 
you might have core audiences for each of your different brands on each of your different platforms, we still need to show that we are, you know, we are targeting that, that broad market. So that's, that makes things that makes things really hard. I think people don't necessarily appreciate the challenge that the industry that it puts on. You know, also, you know, we are publicly funded. You know, we have we have a license fee. We don't have the bottomless pits of money that say Netflixes and your Amazons have. But of course, we are inevitably compared to them and put in the same bucket system. So that is that's a big challenge. I think. I think. And I think it's just that, that kind of notion of public purpose is incredibly empowering and incredibly... I mean, you talk to anyone at the BBC and they will tell you how passionate they are about working there. Obviously, we have the day-to-day -day frustrations that I'm sure everyone here has in their, in their jobs. But I think that, just that notion of kind of for the greater good and public purpose, and especially when you look at news and things like that, it's very easy to kind of pick holes and... But, you know, there's, there is that kind of striving for, you know, to kind of... for that, that higher purpose. And, and we, just, we just have a lot of very difficult decisions to make in terms of where the small amounts, you know, the money that we have, where it goes and where we need to put our focuses. Beauty Sounds is a great example. Obviously we've had to turn off I Play Radio. That's it's not an easy decision to make, but it's, you know, it is the right one that we now can offer a much broader range of audio to a much wider audience. Um, so I think it's just, I guess, people will kind of be more aware of that, I think. But at the same time, their scrutiny pushes us to make greater content, so I think that's also really important. I don't know what I would change if I, I mean, the obvious thing is to say, oh, I wish everyone, you know, appreciated the value of the arts, yeah. but like, I mean, like, I just do that actually, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> Next. Um, I think for me, actually a good story about this, I was at the um, Grand Final Awards last week, I'm sure some people in the room were as well. And um, someone who won an award went up and immediately dissed Apple Music and Spotify in their acceptance speech, kind of saying that um, those platforms were reducing classical music, sort of reducing it to, to playlisting and things like that. Um, and I, I think that's a view that quite a few people do hold in, in the classical kind of industry, and I think that's a real shame. Um, I do understand where, where they're coming from, but... Um, you know, people's, people are changing, um, classical audiences, well, we need more of a young classical audience, and I think pe people, organisations like Spotify and Apple Music are brilliantly placed to welcome in a whole new, we basically need a replenishing audience for an entire genre of music, <laughs> um, and yeah, I think Spotify is really well placed for that, you know, we have the ability to, to put classical music into change it into a mood and a moment so that people don't even realise that they're listening to classical music and enjoy, you know, it can go all lessons in the interpretation of Bach without knowing what it is, but they'll still enjoy it and they'll explore it and it's the perfect place to discover more about it. Um, so I guess I, I would just, I would wish that some of the snootiness uh, about Spotify and, and classical music would sort of go away overnight. And, and, but I'm trying to change that, so hopefully it will. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Any other questions? Hello, thank you for all of the really interesting answers. Um, some of the chat talk discussion has been around um, the importance of getting a new audience for classical music. Um, I wondered. Um, with the more challenging classical music, like dissonant and, and atonal classical music, how can streaming and podcasting help music which is more difficult to listen to, but so important? Um, I think uh, podcasting, I mean, what, what I try to do with my podcast is to give some context first, um, which I find helps, especially if the piece is a bit more difficult. Um, if you tell someone, you know, what what the world was like when it was being composed, what the composer was thinking, what the composer was going through. Um, I find that often helps people kind of deal with that challenge a bit better. Um, Spotify, um, I'm sure I can share this, Spotify is going to be launching a kind of, uh, well, mixed media playlists where you can enjoy a piece and a podcast in the same kind of playlist. And you can curate those yourselves, but obviously I hope to curate a few as well. And I think that's a great just opportunity to provide, again, just more context. You know, you can hear about a piece, then you can listen to it, and you can go back. Um, and, you know, like I said before, putting those things into, making those into moments and moods. You know, um, 
you would probably be more inclined to listen to that if you were feeling, you know, a really difficult piece, if you were feeling angry or you were feeling sad, and, and that's the kind of tool that we have as Spotify to, to help people enjoy it in that way. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think, I agree, I think that the notion of like, you know, the multimedia mix you can offer within a platform like a Spotify or a Chromephonic or a BBC Sounds, I think, allows you to get a clearer sense of, yeah, I suppose the context and everything else around it. But what I think obviously these student platforms all offer is, if you have a niche taste, there's a, there's a, there's a place for you, you know, which is which amazing. You know, Radio 3, for instance, the linear radio station, we have a certain number of hours in the day we can fill, um, although we are about to launch a very experimental jazz program, which I think you'll really enjoy. And um, I think, and obviously, we are very big on kind of more experimental music, and that unclassified as the kind of experimental genre bending again, kind of late night show that we do as well. But I think that's part of the beauty of of these streaming spaces is that you can find those corners of really difficult, complex music that for the people who want to find them, it's fantastic. The big challenge then is how they discover them, as we kind of talked about. That's the really tough part because if they're appealing to more niche audiences, they're probably not going to get a splash on the homepage, you know, or in that top rail. So I think that's that's one of the bigger challenges is you know how you market it, how you how you make it discoverable, so you can then bring audiences to it and then show them what else is kind of around the edges. Yeah, I agree. I've got one thing to add as well is that like a lot of the time, the this music, the, the great thing about it that, it that it has that a lot of all the music doesn't is that the composer's still alive. So you can ask them questions and you can have them talking about stuff and like nothing's gonna, no one's gonna talk about their works better than composers. I mean, composers are sometimes funny people, right? And like all of them are like the most, uh, but, but lots of them actually are and they're brilliant about talking about their work um, and why it's important and stuff like that. So I think there's a great podcast on uh, one of the US Radio sessions at WQXR, I think, that they meet the composer uh, with Nadia Sarota. That's amazing. She talks to like, okay, fine, so there's Johnny Therados and there's some Nicky Moody and easier stuff, but she also talks to like, I can't think off the top of my head now, some of the more uh, esoteric, sort of, um, you know, harder to listen to for a beginner kind of uh, contemporary music. But she does, and like, and it completely works when you have the composer saying, oh yeah, but it's just this, or like it's based on this, or I was reminded of this, or whatever. Like, I think that really helps. Like, yeah, that's, again, talking about playing to the strengths, like, the strength of contemporary music is that they're still alive and yeah. like, you can just give that context so much easier. Is there another question around the front? Do you think the term classical music is going to be around for much longer? <laughs> and is it useful for your, your organisations in trying to reach younger audiences? That's a really good question. I don't. I don't think I know the answer, but I'm happy to think about some stuff live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had, uh, so on Profile, we have um, our main audience is core classical, right? So people who are prepared to pay for only a streaming service that's classical, you assume, right, they're going to be. But, but uh, what we found actually is that there is a smaller subset of users who want to use it to learn more about classical. Um, and so we, about what, nine months, ten months into, into the job, like, we were like, okay, we need to make a whole new set of playlists for these people because they're a bit intimidated by like Enescu 101 playlists, right? So, um, and this exact question came up because um, our head of marketing is a, a, knows nothing about classical music at all. He's learning a lot now, obviously, he's into the job. And he said, okay, so we should put like a classical essentials playlist. And I was like, but if you have a classical essentials playlist, is that classical as in Mozart, Beethoven, and Haydn, or is that classical as in classical? Um, and he didn't, he, it, was, it took a long time to explain to him that classical describes both a period and also like the whole thing. And, and, and this is the debate that's been had a low. It's, uh, there's a clip on YouTube of Stephen Fry and James Rose talking about it, and they should call it, I can't remember what they come up with, but they have a term which I don't really like for it. There's like Western art music, there's like, um, I always think, well, yeah, orchestral. There's like, oh, you know, there is another music other than orchestral, of course. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but. Um, I think it's good that people have a conversation. Another thing is like with this kind of strain of like, what's often called neoclassical or indie classical, right? Ultra Arnold's, Johannes Hansen, uh, that kind of thing. Lots of Icelandic composers for some reason. Um, whether we call that neoclassical, because that to me like Stravinsky's like second phase is neoclassical, that's not what's happening now. But do you call it like indie classical? People hate that. I don't know. It's. I think as long as people keep trying things and keep annoying people with new things, eventually something might stick. I don't think in the short term the word classical is going anywhere though. In the next hundred years, I reckon. Um, I think it's kind of a tale of two cities because, um, yes, on one hand, some days I wish I could remove the word classical totally and just let people listen 
like I said, to, to kind of the feeling rather than the kind of label of it being classical, I think. Just because of what, you know, a lot of our user base associate classical music with, it can be quite alienating, just the word. Um, saying that, I also think we should continue to celebrate it. Um, you know, I want to educate a new generation and welcome them in. And yes, sometimes that will involve letting them discover classical music without that label immediately, but then helping them explore the genre on a kind of broader level with that word very much in place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one thing Spotify is doing is um, a more kind of algatorial approach where, um, you know, of a pool of a hundred pieces that um, I put in, uh, your 60 pieces would be different from your 60 pieces and your 60 pieces, depending on what kind of music you like and what kind of music you listen to and like I think that's a kind of good way to to welcome people into to classical music without scaring them um, but yeah I think it's both nice balance yeah I think I think I agree it's it's a tricky one I up until recently I was just very firmly of the opinion that there is a better word for it so frankly can we stop complaining about it and just and help redefine it in a way that has that broader appeal to younger audiences? I think, you know, if any other person go, it's just good music. Well, for God's sake, like, that's the least helpful way of describing it. Some of it's really quite shit, actually. So, um, so I think, but I wonder to kind of, as goes both, both of your points, I think, I almost wonder whether it's a, there's a sort of subliminal point whereby for genuinely entirely new audiences where that kind of, as I mentioned, like, yeah, the mood part I think is massively important. I think we're not, I think there's so much more to be done there as a kind of inroad in. I think if that's like almost your introductory phase for the really new audience who just want to understand so we can demonstrate that, yeah, just the simple benefit of engaging with this kind of music and the, the gambling of the range of emotions it can help, it can help you kind of with. But then there comes a point at which you subtly flip the switch and suddenly you are slightly more consciously talking about this as classical music so that you can then start understanding what it is you like about the genre and then when you can start and how you can start exploring it. So I think otherwise, if we just keep it so broad, I think it's going to be quite hard to kind of continue those journeys of discovery. Well, yeah, I'm sorry, I think I might, but two of the programs I found really interesting, the night tracks and also unclassified, which are kind of presented all as a, as a sort of um, sidebar to the mainstream classical program on Radio 3. But for, you know, looking to most of my sort of contemporaries, that's the program that they would find most interesting. How are they going to be discovering that? when you, know, you go on BBC Sounds and the, the label is just classical. Is there a way in that people can find from other genres? So you're saying which, how, so they're listening to like tracks and unclassified. Well, yeah. How are they going to find their way content, into the more core content? I think the content of those programmes is going to be of more interest to, to younger audiences, but how are they going to find that by sort of sifting through the classical? How are they going to find the night tracks and unclassified? Yeah. That's what I mean. Um, it's, yeah, it's about how we start demonstrating that we, we're getting younger audience from a linear perspective, but also it, then that it deserves that prominence on, on the front on the kind of the front pages of, of BBC Sounds, I think is the is the is the kind of tough part of it. I mean, you know, you're inevitably restricted by the how the product is designed. You know, ours has got a library at the top and podcasts underneath and yeah, it takes a little while to sift through. I think what will help is the algorithms, and as Kelly kind of mentioned, that you know the idea with sounds is that the more you use it, the more intuitive it becomes. But what you have to get right is the balance between it serving you just content it knows you've already liked, or very similar, or brand new content that just it just things you would enjoy discovering. So I think the more the idea is that as our algorithm gets more sophisticated, and it should start, it will see that you've searched for yeah maybe a kind of Oliver Arnold's here or you know, a bit of a late junction there, then maybe at some point then it, it would naturally surface up by classified all the night tracks and, and then you'd start to be able to add that to your library. So that's the hope. We talked a lot tonight about um, boundaries being more fluid between albums, mixes, podcasts, especially with the invention of the multimedia mix. How reactive are the platforms like Spotify, BC Sounds, Primephonic in terms of that change in content, um, whether it be how you name it or the length of that content, do you think it's reactive enough? Is it moving quick enough or is there improvement to be made there? I mean, in terms of how reactive uh, like Spotify as a platform is to what people want and, and how people kind of consume, um, my day is just looking at stats 
and seeing how the users are experiencing something and changing and trying to make that experience better. And I know that I speak for all the editors in all the genres. Um, and the great thing about Spotify is that, you know, experimenting is actually encouraged and, um, you know, testing out different things and, and um, yeah, trying to make things work. So, yeah, I would say Spotify is the best, like the perfect example of, of a really reactive kind of platform where the user experience is definitely number one. Yeah, I think um, I, I basically agree with what Vicky guys have said. I, from, from the microphone perspective, we have like a very small dev team. So if you want to build a feature, you have to fight with like nine other people about why your feature is more important and like how long it's going to take. So um, from that, I think with, with the smaller companies like that, I think there is a long way to go, right? Like, because I would love to be able to do this kind of mixed media thing, but in reality, I know that the product managers can say, how many, how many subscribers are going to get us, right? And like, I, I can't answer that question for him. So I think, yeah. I agree with Phil, there's a long way to go, I think, in, in, in that becoming the norm, or whether that does become the norm and how people consume stuff. But I think also important to, the app I don't think is going anywhere as well. Like I think kind of, it, it's still an important kind of artistic thing, right? Like, um, and I think artists are going to continue to be drawn to making albums. The format of those albums might change slightly, like, like the Wicked Girl we're talking about. But um, I think, yeah, important to like, how this measure, measure what people are doing and how people are listening. And, uh, and try to be reactive as much as possible, but yeah, it's a tough one. Do you have any concerns that the podcast market might be becoming saturated? Um, it's funny, right? Like, podcaster now is almost up there with like YouTuber. It's like kind of like teenage, like dream job, you know? Like, <laughs> podcast. Um, like everyone's got a podcast, I swear. Like everyone I talk to is like, oh yeah, I'm going to do a podcast. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, in the sense that there's so many podcasts out there and no one has any chance of possibly discovering all the ones that they want to listen to, yeah, it probably already is saturated. I don't think that's a reason to stop doing them or for people to stop experimenting with them. Um, you know, in the same way that there's loads of great music out there I wanted to hear, but I still want people to make it. Um, but yeah, it's a good point. I, I think it's one of those things where discovery becomes really important. Like, um, that's something that you saw, like with, when like the app store first became a thing, like when the iPhones and like you had like the iOS app store and Android app store and stuff like that, uh, that was the biggest problem those 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 like stores had was discovery, like bringing interesting stuff to the front page and like allowing people to discover stuff that was relevant to them or that was new that was interesting. And I think you kind of see the same thing with podcasts, like the really really famous ones get a lot of space, and then the kind of the lesser ones is quite hard to break through. Um, and I think different apps do that differently. I think the great thing about podcasts is that it's open, right? It's RSS feed. It's just a bunch of audio files with some metadata and then an RSS field pointing to it. So, like, I think every app can, can use that data differently, right? So, Overcast will do it differently to Spotify, will do it differently to Sounds, will do it differently to iTunes. But not iTunes doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I think you're probably, you're probably right. Probably is becoming oversaturated, but I don't think it matters that much because it's like more content can't be a bad thing. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I think because we talk, it's such a buzzword, right? As, as you know, as guys saying, we talk about it all the time. I think what we forget is that for a lot of our platforms, the percentage of, you know, the, of kind of space that or the usership that podcast takes up compared to music is still tiny. So yes, incrementally it's booming, but you know, still, you know, 80% pretty much of, of the usership of those, of a lot of these big streaming platforms is still music. So I think there's still a long, long way to go from that point of view. I think equally, I think, It'll only get really saturated. I think once kind of the, the kind of the magic equation for it is cracked, or or, or innovation becomes really difficult to continue. And I think for me, one of the beauties of something like a serial, which you know I was obsessed with, was that you know clearly the guys who made it did not understand what made it quite that successful because series two is shit, you know. And I think that, but that's fascinating. That's exciting. And I think equally, I mean, you know, certainly with the BBC, we've done. You know, the fact that you, know, you can just chuck Peter Crouch on a podcast and everybody loves it, and it is absolute gold, whether you like football or not. Um, and, or, you know, we just love Forest 404, I don't know if anyone listened to that on radio, you know, from Radio 4, but that, you know, that was a totally new podcast experience, like a sci-fi drama in the future, that then had kind of nine episodes, then it had accompanying nine episodes of talks on the themes that came out of each episode, and it had nine episodes on the soundscapes that sat behind each episode with kind of Bonobo having written the theme music and all this kind of stuff. And it's just something like, whoa, I mean, there's like 8,000 episodes of this podcast. Is that even a podcast anymore? I don't even know. But I think it's, you know, these are new ways of storytelling. So I think, I think while that's still happening, I think 
obviously discoverability absolutely is, is, a, is a real challenge, but I think, I think people will still kind of flood to it. Um, yes, I worry all the time that the podcast market is saturated. Someone said to me the other day that the podcast is the new band. So like, you know how 20 years ago everyone was like, yeah, I'm a band. And now today it's, oh, I make a podcast. Um, and yeah, I think that's truer than ever. I started my podcast at a time where I thought podcasts were exploding. And boy, was I wrong. Now they're exploding because not just... It is true, anyone can make a podcast, but also nowadays you're seeing all these celebrities jump on the bandwagon when all the kind of independent podcasters made the bandwagon kind of what it was, which is frustrating. Um, but you know, you've got your Conan O'Briens and your Alec Baldwin's and all these celebrities. Um, so I think it's harder than ever to be heard as an independent podcaster. And you know, I. I would say I work very hard to, to make my podcast be seen and, and be heard. Um, and I think if you're starting a podcast now and you're not a, a kind of well-known name, it's going to be difficult. But um, you know, my advice—no one's asked me—but my advice to you is just email everyone, pull in every favor. Don't have any shame trying to get your podcast somewhere where people can see it and hear it. Um, ask celebrities, tweet celebrities, ask if they'll come on, you know, um, really just have no shame because no one else does. Um, so yeah, it is a saturated market, but I think if you, um, not to be cheesy, but like if you're really determined to make something work and you feel like you've got something to say and you're filling a gap in the market, there's always room for more. Are you worried about the exclusive content thing happening with podcasts? So the fact that you could only get serial if you listen via Spotify, or you can only get this one if you listen via this app. It's happening, it's like happening a bit. Do you think that's the way things are gonna go? I think like what I'm seeing at the moment is obviously Spotify has invested like I think it was $360 million in podcasts because they bought Gimlet and Podcast earlier this year. Um, what I'm seeing is that a lot of the time something is exclusive to a platform for a while and then it goes everywhere um, often because like a lot of the time creators like like you say it's an RSS feed like they can put it where they want like um, I, I don't see any creator saying that they'd be happy to just have it on one platform like for eternity. I'm not sure if that happened. Does that, have you seen that happen? Is that BBC Sounds actually? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, do you, are your shows all like, are they just staying on BBC Sounds, right? They're not going anywhere. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's not so I'm I think, I think there may be, I think some of that battleground is, is emerging. I think it is. Um, you know, how that happens on the BBC, you'll have to just download sounds and find out. But um, I think, yeah, are we going to get, I think it's one of those interesting things that I guess, the kind of the production and the process and the ideation of it, and everything, it feels so dramatically different from, you know, my TV production process and you know that, I mean, certainly in terms of, you know, you've got the big set of production houses on TV who you know are going to probably creative right here, you know, with, with the budgets that you've got. I think, but yeah, actually no, I, I, do, I think there will be a bit of jostling over that. I think talent, again, will become the real, the real focus, as it is with, you know, within the TV landscape as well. I think people will battle it out for, and you'll probably start seeing bigger sums of money, I guess, get pushed around, and to try and keep the big pod, podcasting talent on, on your platform, whether that's permanently or, you know, for, for short, exclusive periods of time. But um, yeah, it's an interesting model to watch, I think. Brilliant. I think we will have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much to our speakers who came along tonight. Let's give them a round of applause.